Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So the word is like? 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 Where's the, where's the bell? Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> um, well, it's Fourth of July weekend, and uh, so I thought what we'd start off uh, this morning is, what I'd like you to do is just think about for a moment, what is the best fireworks display you ever saw? Okay? And, and maybe, if you want to, the worst fireworks display you ever saw, okay? And I'm going to give you about, like, 30 seconds to just turn to the person next to you tell them, what's the best fireworks display you ever saw, okay? Take it. Do it right now. Switch. All right, now let the other person have a chance. Okay, I'll tell you mine. Um, probably the very best fireworks display I ever saw uh, was at Candlestick Park. Um, and I heard my wife down here in the front row, she was telling me it was hers too. Um, and it was after the Giants had played a game on the 4th of July, and they had won, which made it a lot better. Um, yeah. And, um, but they did, they did a fireworks display afterwards. So everybody, you stayed in your seats. So you had like these front row arena seats and they, they shot them off right over the top of, of Candlestick Park. And they had all the music background going with the two. So it was all synchronized with the music. It was the coolest, coolest fireworks display I ever saw. The worst that I ever saw was the Bicentennial. And the reason it was the worst is because it was given all kinds of big buildup. This was going to be like in San Francisco, the fireworks display. Did I say like? Okay, we're going to have to knock that off. Um, but it was given this big hype. It was going to be the best ever. I mean, it was the bicentennial, 1976, 200 years of independence. And it was going to be, and, and we thought, oh, this is going to be so cool. So um, my dad was going to take us out on his boat. And, uh, and we went out, and we went out on San Francisco Bay, and we anchored out there. And it was the foggiest 4th of July ever. And we sat on the boat and we heard all kinds of noise going up and all kinds of light going in the fog, but we could not see a single firework. So that was like the worst for me. Um, and I don't know about you, but I, I love fireworks. It's like, you know, the bigger, the brighter, the louder, you know, um, that's the safe and sane stuff. That's just like a waste of money. You know, I don't know who came up with that idea. When we were kids, you know, you got those snakes, you know, which took forever to light. And then they just kind of, they were a pile of ashes. And you got sparklers and, you know, big whoop, you know. You throw them in the air to maybe, you know, pretend it was fireworks. I don't know. But big, loud, booming fireworks. Um, that's what I, my very favorite, my favorite ones are not the, not the, the um, you know, the, all the glittery ones. My favorite ones are the ones that are just a big boom, you know. It's like, there's, no, there's not a whole lot of, you know, glitter to the whole thing. It just, it hits so hard. It just, you feel it down in your chest. Like, that's my all-time favorite. I love fireworks. I love celebrations. I love, you, you go out to the fireworks and you sit there and everybody goes, ooh, ah. Because it's part of what we do. It really is a part of our human makeup. That we are, we are created in such a way that we celebrate. That we make noise. That we, that we react emotionally to things that, that, that cause awe in us or, or, or capture our attention or things that we love. It's just, it's a natural thing for us because it's it's the way god wired us up and it goes to the heart of what i want to talk about this morning this whole idea of praise 
For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about worship and different aspects of worship. And there is something about vocalizing praise that is renewing. It's, it's energizing to us. Something about expressing what's going on down deep inside. When we say it out loud, um, it, it just adds to the enjoyment of it. It adds to the, to the sense of awe or whatever it is that we're, we're looking at. And it's a natural part of the way that God created us. We are designed to express praise. When God created and he formed Adam out of the dirt, it says he breathed life into him. And that breath that went into Adam, in the same breath that comes into each one of us at the beginnings of our life on this earth, that same breath is to be used back to God in praise. And worship and praise is a very, very big part of how God created us. So this morning, first week, we talked about rest and the need to eliminate hurry from our lives, to slow down the pace of our life. Um, Last week, we talked about the need to recalibrate, to to reorder our priorities, and worship helps us do that, to to set our affection, to set our hearts on what really matters, our, our affection and our hearts towards God. This morning, I want to talk about another re word, resound, echo, noise, okay? And, and that's a big part of worship too. It's called praise. Psalm 47 puts it this way. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. How awesome is the Lord most high. How the great king over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, people under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid sounding trumpets. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King over all the earth. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on His holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Worship is a part of who we are. It's how God created us. And this morning I want to talk a little bit about how can we do that better? How can we give voice to our praise? How can we become a little more adept at it? And the book of Psalms is filled with all kinds of instructions. Psalm 47 is just one of them. And there's a couple of things he tells us. First of all, when you worship, he says, worship with abandon. Worship with abandon. Worship has to be expressed. Praise that isn't expressed isn't praise. It just isn't. You can't praise somebody and keep your mouth shut. It just doesn't work that way. And Psalms is filled with all of these expressions of praise. We read a few of them um, just in Psalm 47. Let me give you a few more, okay? These are found all throughout the book of Psalms. He says things like, shout to the Lord, dance before him, declare his praises and bless his name, sing a new song, shout aloud, make a joyful noise. Praise him by blowing trumpets. Praise him with harps and lyres, with stringed instruments, and with tambourines and dancing. Praise him with cymbals. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing loud cymbals. Clap your hands. Lift up your hands. Lift up your heads. Stand in awe. Bow before him. Seek his ways. Tell of his might. Walk in his truth. Give him thanks. The whole book of Psalms is filled with all kinds of instructions on how to praise God. 
And he says, you got to do this. Worship. Worship with abandon. In other words, what he's saying is, just make some noise. Just make noise. In fact, yeah, okay. You're kind of getting the idea here. If you can't sing, he says, shout. If you can't shout, just make a joyful noise of some kind. You know, whatever it is. He says, make some noise. Worship with abandon. The most common word that you find in the book of Psalms is the Hebrew word halal. Say it out loud with me, would you? Halal. Halal. The word simply means this. It means to madly boast or to be clamorously foolish before the Lord. Get crazy. (laughs) It's where we get our English word, our transliterated word, hallelujah. Halal. Yah. Praise God. Make noise. Be clamorously foolish. Now, if you want to know what that looks like, okay, I did a little bit of a video, um, found a little video for us, okay? Um, if you've any been watching the World Cup, okay, you know about making noise, okay? Here's a little bit of an example of what having abandoned looks like, okay? All right. So we already know how to do this, okay? I mean, people get up there dressed up. I want to know how that guy got that life raft up in the stands, you know, and what this, all the people around him who paid for those seats, you know, did he buy all of those? We, we know how to get crazy. We just get crazy over the wrong things sometimes. We get crazy over 90 minutes of maybe two goals if it's a high-scoring game. Now, I love soccer, okay? But honestly, sometimes it does get a little boring. But we get foolishly clamorous over a lot of things. We already know how to do it. What Psalms is saying is, do that to God. Be like that with God. Get excited. You know, we we get so reserved about God. There's an account in the Old Testament of King David. And... um, It's when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back into Jerusalem. And it says that David got down in front of the whole procession, the front of the parade. He stripped down to his skivvies and he danced like crazy in front of the Ark as it was brought into the temple. That's what you call clamorously foolish. And his wife, his wife said to him later, what kind of idiot are you? You are the king. That's just not very dignified. He says, what do you think you're doing? You get out of, what are people going to think about the king of Israel dancing like that in his skivvies? 
And this is what David said to her. David said to Michael, his wife, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Now, how he's going to get more humiliated, I don't know what he's got in mind. But he says, get excited. Shout, sing, jump. We are over and over repeatedly commanded and instructed and urged. Sing praises. Verse 6, sing praises to God. Sing praises. And in case you didn't get it, sing praises to our king. Sing praises. See, we get way too hung up on form. We get way too hung up on style and personal taste. We get hung up on sway way too many things. Do you know, we read, we read it last week, the very first corporate worship event happened with the nation of Israel after they had crossed the Red Sea and they got on the other side of the Red Sea and we read some of that last week. How they danced and they shouted and they sang this, this incredible psalm um, of praise to God. And, and Miriam, who was um, Moses' um, sister, she got out a tambourine. And while everybody was singing, she's playing the tambourine and all the ladies with her, they're playing tambourines and they're pounding on the tambourine. They're dancing and singing this whole thing. That is the first worship experience we have, corporate worship experience we have recorded in the Bible. The next one happens in Exodus 19, three chapters later. And this time, it's Moses going up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. And God says to them, now you have people prepare themselves, wash themselves, get cleaned up, get all set for this. Because in the third day, three days we're going to do this, and on the third day, I am going to come down and show my glory. And it says that, that there was like a sound of a loud, loud trumpet, and smoke just enveloped the whole mountain. Just, just, it was a completely different experience. Now, you can imagine, if you will, way back then, if it were like today, you know, somebody after the second one probably would have said something along like, well, where were the tambourines? How come we didn't do the tambourine song? I like the tambourine song. I like all this smoke and lightning stuff. I don't like trumpets. I want the tambourine. I'm not coming to this place anymore. They don't do the tambourine dance enough. Or somebody else saying, oh, I'm glad that tambourine stuff is over. You know, that's just so undignified. I love the majesty and the glory and and the smoke and the lightning. Now that's worship. We get so hung up on personal taste and style. And all that we are told in Scripture is just make some noise. Find a way to do it and make some noise. Be loud. Be boisterous in it. Be foolishly clamorous. Worship with abandon. But with that, he also says now, also worship with a sense of awe. It goes on, verse 2. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great King over all the earth. See, emotions are great. And he says, don't be afraid to express your emotion. But it's not just emotion for emotion's sake. There is a reason why we worship. There is an object to our worship. And it is the awesome, holy God. I think sometimes we walk out of a worship service and we kind of evaluate the service based on how I feel as I leave. If I was moved, 
If, if I shed a few tears, then it was a good worship. And if I wasn't, well then, that just wasn't very good worship today. And we evaluate the whole thing based on how I feel. It is not about me. It is not about you. Worship is about God. And you can do that anyway. If you just bring your heart to Him. See, God is the object of our worship. He says, clap, sing, shout to God. To an audience of one. Soren Kierkegaard talked about this. He said, sometimes we come into our worship services as if we are coming to a performance. And, and we are the audience, and these are the performers up on stage. He says, that's not worship. There's only one audience in worship. It's God. And the performers are the congregation. And those who stand up here to lead, they're just simply the prompters to help you remember your lines. <laughs> that's worship. Worship is God-centered. It is God-focused. We are the performers. God is the audience. And that sense of awe is what keeps our praise on target. That sense of awe reminds us of, of who is worthy of our praise. Let me give you another Hebrew word. The word is shaka. The Hebrew word shaka. It means to bow down, to fall down flat, to do reverence, to worship. The way you would approach a king or the way that you would bow before God. You see, without a sense of awe, then, then, then we just become overly familiar. Now he says, yeah, be exuberant. Be abandoned in your praise. Yes, be loud, be boisterous, all of that stuff. But never forget who it is you are worshiping. It's the God, creator of the universe. Verses 7 and 8. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. It's God that we worship. And without that sense of awe, then God becomes to us just the big guy. The man upstairs. You know, or I've seen on a t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy, you know? And we lose a sense of awe and reverence. See, I have a lot of people that say things to me like, I'm a very spiritual, when they find out I'm a pastor, oh, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm just not very religious. And what it really means, that's code word for, I choose what I want to believe. <laughs> I choose the parts of God I want to believe in, and the parts I don't like, I just kind of leave to the side. It's, it's the American way of worship. Smorgasbord worship. I think a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit over here. And we fashion a God out of our own thoughts. The God that we like. The God who is nice to us. And when you do that, when you start fashioning God out of your own image, out of your own thoughts, out of your own pick and choose, you don't end up with God. You end up with a cardboard cutout of God. And you can't have a relationship with a cardboard cutout. And you certainly can't worship. He says, know the Lord. He is God. He is king over all. See, 
That sense of awe is so important because it keeps placing God in his rightful place. Verse 5, David said, God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid the sounding trumpets. Now that's kind of strange wording. God ascended amid shouts of joy? It's like, you mean like our praises, our shouts of joy, that makes God move? It's not that God moves. It's that our perspective changes. That we begin to see God as he really is. See, a cardboard cutout of God doesn't argue with you. A cardboard cutout God doesn't challenge you, doesn't stretch you, doesn't make you angry. He's there at your beck and call when you want him to be the way you want him to be. But God, who he is, sometimes makes us angry, sometimes leaves us confused. Sometimes challenges us and stretches us and pulls us out of our own selfishness. And the sense of awe is what helps us see God for who He really is. And that's why not only is the Psalms filled with commands and urges and and, and promptings to shout and sing and clap and dance and all those other things, they also keep bringing us back to because He is a great God, the King over all gods. Remember who it is that we are worshiping. And then lastly, you worship God with a confident assurance. Worship with assurance that there is nothing beyond God's control. Again, Psalm 47, verse 8, he said, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. Verse 9, the nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. That God is in complete control over all the earth. And all rulers and all kings and all presidents are all in His hand. Now, that's what the psalm says, but we look around at our world. And it's kind of hard to believe that sometimes. Because we look at our world that is, is torn apart by war and terrorism and poverty And tyrants, rulers over nations who subdue their people with an iron fist. And we say, how can God be in control of all of that? And even we look at our own country. And we look at our economy. And we look at oil spills. And we look at our government. And and some of my conservative friends think that the Democrats and Obama are, are, are just tearing our country apart. And some of my liberal friends thought George Bush already did that, you know? And we look at our country and we go, is there any hope for us? What is going to happen? Is it going to get any better? And then we even look at our own lives. And we've lost our jobs or our finances are tight or we're going to lose our home or all these other things. And we say, how can God be in control? I mean, everything just seems to be falling apart all over the place. How can God say he's in control? If he's in control, he's not doing a very good job at it. Why didn't he do something? That is an age-old argument. It's an age-old question. In fact, the prophet Habakkuk, which you maybe never even heard of, one of the minor prophets, it's a book of the Bible, back near the end of the Old Testament. Habakkuk was a prophet of God. And he looked at the nation of Israel and all that was going on in it, and all the degradation and all the injustice and everything that was happening, and he cried out to God, How long, God? How long are you going to let this keep going on? 
How long before you step in and do something about this? Look at what I see on my right side and on my left side. I look all around me and this is all that I see. How long, God, are you going to let this keep going on? And God answers him. He says, oh, just you wait. <laughs> just you wait. Just wait for it. You know, wait for it. Wait for it. Okay, here it comes. Wait for it. I'm going to send the Babylonians. And the Babylonian Empire is going to overrun the nation of Israel for all of their sin and all their degradation. He says, and I'm going to use the Babylonians to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. And Habakkuk says, the Babylonians? The Babylonians, they're worse than we are. (laughs) How can you, somebody worse than us, bring judgment on us? The Babylonians, they're like the worst of all. They're worse than we are. How can you be using them? God says, don't you worry about the Babylonians. I'll take care of them too. And, and, and he has this ongoing argument with God. And, and God keeps saying, I got it under control. He says, yeah, but you're not doing it the way I want you to. I got it under control. But, but God, how could... It's under control. And there's an incredible verse that Paul quotes, actually, in the book of Romans, that becomes the foundation of the Christian faith. God says to Habakkuk, the just will live by faith. You trust me. Just trust me. And then Habakkuk writes these words. Chapter 3, verse 7. Okay, God. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will praise I will choose to praise. Though it doesn't make sense, I will praise. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Here's another Hebrew word for you. Kassah. It means to seek refuge or protection. To put trust or confidence or hope in God. It's what Habakkuk is doing. It doesn't make any sense to me, God. I don't know what you're doing or how you're doing it. It just seems like everything is out of control and falling apart all around me. Yet, I will be joyful in you. I will trust you. And about 600 years later, more empires have come and gone. And after the Babylonians... After the Babylonians come another empire. And they take out the Babylonians. The Persians do. And then after the Persians come the Greeks. And the Greeks take over the Persians. And following the Greeks come the Romans. And in that whole course of 600 years, God is doing something. Because the Babylonians brought punishment, God's punishment to the nation of Israel. And and then the Persians came along and let the nation of Israel go back to their home country. And then the Greeks come, and what the Greeks bring, the Greek empire brings a unified language through that whole area. The Greek empire expands incredibly, and there becomes a unified language. Everybody speaks Greek. They might speak Hebrew, they might speak Aramaic, they might speak all kinds of other languages, but they also all learn to speak Greek. And now there is a unified language. And then the Romans come along and overthrow the Greeks. And what the Romans do is they build roads and provide transportation. And they also bring with them a method of execution called 
crucifixion. No one had ever done that before. That was a Roman's invention. And one day, there was a Caesar named Caesar Augustus who sends out a decree that all the world should be taxed. Who's in charge? Caesar Augustus. He puts out a decree. Everybody's got to go get taxed. And a man named Joseph and a woman named Mary make their way to a city called Bethlehem because that's where their hometown is. And in that place in Bethlehem, under Roman rule, is born a Savior. And he grows up, and under King Herod, he is arrested and brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and he is put to death on a cross. And God is working. God is moving kingdoms and kings and empires all over the place, and nobody knows he's doing this. But 2,000 years ago, a baby was born into this world, the Son of God, who brought the kingdom of God, who was arrested and hung on a tree and gave up his life and was resurrected for new life for you and for me because God was in control the whole time. And the Apostle Paul writes about it. Acts chapter 2. Excuse me, this is Peter speaking. Long ago, God planned that Jesus would be handed over to you. And with the help of evil people, you put Jesus to death. But God raised him from the dead. So be sure of this. You nailed Jesus to the cross, but God made him both Lord and Christ. God was in control all along. And he still is. Do you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.